It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you today. Lots to run through. By the way, um, if you want to get us on the Internet, live stream on the Internet, uh, wabcradio.com is one day one way to do it, or just uh, larrykudlowshow.com. You can get us all across the country and around the world and throughout the solar system. We have a terrific following around the solar system. And incidentally, during the week on Fox Business Television, the name of the show is Cudlow, and it's 4 to 5 p.m. every single day. And um, please watch it. If you can't make it at 4, you can call up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. So that's uh, that's our communication story. Uh, I want to begin today uh, with the tragic, tragic assassination of uh, former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, uh, who I knew rather well uh, through various meetings. As director of the National Economic Council, I also was the international Sherpa for various G7s and G20s and UNs and whatnot, and um, and I want to extend my very sincere condolences uh, to the family of Shinzo Abe, and also to all the people of Japan. And I want to say, Mr. Abe was a conservative reformer. Uh, he was a great believer in free and uh, open discussions, free and open Indo-Pacific strategies. He was the guy that came up with the Indo-Pacific idea, which strategically became a very important point for the United States. Abe understood quite clearly the threat from China and Xi, Xi Jinping. And so he set up what became known as the Indo-Pacific strategy. And the cornerstone of that strategy was Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. Uh, Japan was uh, was and is our greatest ally in the Indo-Pacific area. Australia, I might add, is also a great ally. And in many ways, India is also a great ally, but Of course, my disappointment in India because they are helping Russia in the Ukraine war by buying a lot of Russian oil. They're buying a million barrels a day. Uh, That's restocking uh, Russian uh, cash to finance uh, Putin's military uh, war machine. Very disappointed in India. But India has um, always been an ally, particularly with respect to defending against China. And... uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, was a leader in creating that uh, quad, if you will. Uh, You know, spending a lot of time with Abe in these various meetings, as I said, G7, G20, UN, he made many visits to the White House, uh, many lunches in the cabinet room with the president. I was there, I guess all of them, at least for three years, 
and um, even Mar-a-Lago, there were uh, beautiful luncheon. I guess I'm going to say two, uh, a dinner and a lunch in Mar-a-Lago uh, with President Trump and Prime Minister Abe. I, I, there may have been more, frankly, but you uh, you get to know people. And I always believed that the former prime minister was head and shoulders above all the other, you know, big shot heads of state that uh, we came into contact with. Head and shoulders. He was a brilliant politician. He was a great leader of Japan. He worked very hard, not only with the uh, U.S.-Japanese alliance, not only with President Trump, they were great friends, uh, but also um, at home, Abe was an economic reformer. He tried hard to reignite the Japanese economy. Uh, I'm not sure he was able to succeed, but Abenomics, Abenomics became a, a catchphrase. And I always thought, frankly, although he pursued Keynesian policies in Japan, his uh, motives were good. I, I don't think his specific operations were were great. They were not. I used to say this at almost every meeting with him: uh, cut taxes, deregulate, cut taxes, and deregulate. Uh, Japan, as you may know, is a very tightly knit, uh, centralized economy. Uh, there was a time when it, it grew at four, five, six percent every year, but they have not done that. I don't know, in 20 years, 25 years. But I thought that Abe's great, uh, really great contribution to the American relationship, to defending against uh, communist China, uh, was in the military and foreign policy area where he elevated Japan. He really reinvigorated, resurrected Japan as a major world player. He beefed up the Japanese defense budget, he ran it the highest it had been, I don't know, probably since the end of World War II and um, became a strong voice on the world stage. And it's interesting, um, uh, yesterday, actually, I think it was Thursday night, uh, uh, President Trump called me uh, on another matter not uh, Abe, but we got around to talking about the terrible, terrible news. I think uh, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien got the news from the Japanese foreign minister or foreign ministry and then immediately texted President Trump to let him know. Trump called Robert back. Uh, Robert was on our TV show talking about this uh, last evening. So anyway, President Trump called me about uh, trade and then he also called me again on yesterday about the jobs numbers. But we got around to talking about uh, Abe. Trump really loved Abe. He regarded Abe as his closest friend, his closest ally. And uh, by far closer than any other of the G7 leaders or the G20 leaders. Because Abe was so supportive, Abe was... Abe loved America, loved America, and realized how important it was to praise America, to bring out the best in America. You know, you had all these heads of state in Western Europe particularly, but not only, 
You know, a bunch of ankle biters, honestly. A bunch of little ankle biters. Really. On the whole, I would call them small men. And I would call Prime Minister Abe a great man. A Japanese patriot and a great man. And Donald Trump's closest head of state friend, by far. And i tell you a quick anecdote about this. We were in a UN bilateral meeting uh, with uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Abe. And I witnessed what I think was the single best presentation I saw in my three years uh, as the NEC director and international Sherpa. So, you know, there were threats. Uh, Japan has a fairly protected economy and their trade policies lean towards protectionism. But Abe was bound and determined to open that up as part of his effort to make a stronger economy and part of his effort, I mean, he wanted free and open trade, not only in the Indo-Pacific, but with America. Abe understood and he needed America to be strong and great in order to fend off China and Russia, for that matter, and even some of the craziness in um, in Europe. So, uh, Abe pulls out this 50-page chart book <laughs> showing President Trump with great clarity, I mean, charts and bullets, that Japan is America's best trade ally, top investor, and top manufacturer. And one of the great slides in that 50-page chart book, more Japanese cars are made in America than in Japan. And in fact, more Japanese cars were made here in America than produced by all but one U.S. car maker. I think Ford tied the Japanese cars. But that was all. And I'll tell you, it was a jaw-dropping, it was a jaw-dropping presentation. And uh, as the prime minister went through his paces, after that, and Trump loved it, he was totally focused. President Trump loves, you know, good, well-made chart books. And all of a sudden, talk of trade protectionism, which could have come up in that bilateral meeting, was completely cast aside, permanently, no more. And instead, I think that chart book opened the door to a new era in U.S.-Japanese trade, an opening of U.S.-Japanese trade, where subsequently, in the next couple years, U.S.-Japanese trade improvement deals were struck. I mean, it was just so good. You you cannot believe it. Not vague and general and platitudes like these other heads of state always do, and it's just blowing hot air and so forth. This was like hard facts. And the end of the chart book presentation, Mr. Abe just said his goal here was not simply to prote- uh, stop protectionism between the two countries, but to open up trade to mutual advantage. And it was fabulous, and it worked. And I'll say another thing here. 
Prime Minister Abe is always very kind to me personally. Personally. And, and, you know, over a period of three years with many, many meetings, I mean, that was, you can imagine it, it would be important. Very kind to me personally. And after my, and thankfully minor cardiac episode, I'll call it, every time he saw me, whether it was in the White House or G7 meetings or G20 meetings, or I remember bumping uh, bumping into him in uh, one of these crowded corridors at the UN uh, meetings when he stuck out his, he stopped, you know, his, he was walking to another meeting and he had several, you know, his fi- foreign minister was there, finance minister. He stopped, saw me, walked over, put his hand out and wanted to know how I was, how I was feeling. And virtually every other time I saw him, I mean, it might've been in the, in our cabinet room, a luncheon with president, prime minister Abi would, walk around the long table and uh, put his hand on my shoulder or give me a handshake and just wanted to know how I was, how was my health. And uh, I appreciate that a lot. And that's the kind of man he was. He was a great Japanese patriot. He was America's most loyal supporter. And uh, in my best plain English, He was what you call a great man. His assassination is a terrible, tragic event, and also a tragic event with respect to the whole free world and the movement towards freedom and openness and the coalition of the willing to defend against China which is so important. Again, my deep, sincere condolences to Mr. Abe's family and to the entire Japanese nation. We lost a great man, truly. May God watch over him and may he rest in peace. We'll take a quick break and I'm coming right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to turn now to the economy. We had a jobs report yesterday. Uh, it was a stronger than expected report, I think. It, it wasn't quite as strong as some people uh, have made it out to be. But I, I'll make this point, a couple of key bullets here. Uh, that report, uh, plus 300,000 jobs after the prior two months were revised down by 70,000. I think that report uh, will guarantee uh, that the Fed will increase its uh, policy rate, so-called Fed funds rate, by 75 basis points when they meet again, the FOMC meets at the end of this month. And I would also think they will increase their target rate by another 75 basis points at the September meeting. Sounds like rough stuff, but they got a lot of catching up to do. After after the 75 basis point hike uh, last month, uh, you were at a one and three quarters of percent Fed funds rate, just under 2%. The CPI inflation is running at 8.6. 
and the consumer price uh, deflator, which the Fed watches, is above six. So you still have a deep negative policy rate, and they're going to have to raise that policy rate above the inflation rate. And it's going to have to get, I'm going to suggest to you, it's going to have to get to 6% before this is all said and done, and I hope that's enough. Meanwhile, the Fed will be removing excess cash from the economy. The money supply, M2, is now slowing down uh, from a peak of about near 30% 18 months ago. It's now slowing down to something around 6 or 7%. We'll talk about this with uh, monetary expert John Hartley later in the show. Hopefully that will conquer inflation and it won't reminisce over the 1970s, hopefully. Jay Powell's talking tough. He's regained his inflationary manhood, it seems. He's growing new hair on his chest, it seems. He and the Fed completely bungled the inflation story for the past year and a half, but they're getting some religion now. And I'm just suggesting that the Fed is more determined to fight inflation rather than recession. That's their line right now. Inflation is far more important than recession. They will risk a recession, and they're going to get a recession. They're going to get a recession. I don't know if we're in it now. Maybe we are. The first quarter was minus 1.6%. The second quarter, according to the Atlanta Fed uh, GDP tracker, uh, they have it now at uh, minus one. No, they have it now at minus 1.6%. It uh, was as deep as minus 2.1. So now they're at minus 1.6. And uh, you could have the first half with a negative GDP, something like 1.5% negative. And it'll be accompanied by, you know, 8% inflation. So it's difficult. We're at least on the front end of a recession. And we may already be in one. I would note in yesterday's jobs numbers, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but another measure of jobs called the Household Employment Survey, which tends to pick up individual family members and smaller businesses. And that's really... a Frankly, in the longer run, that's the most important, the more important of the two indicators, because that's where the unemployment rate comes from. Now, unemployment stayed low at 1.6. I beg your pardon, 3.6. Unemployment stayed low. But, 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 household employment fell by over 300,000. This is the second month in the last three that that measure fell. And it's actually, the three-month average is actually minus uh, about, uh, I don't know, 160,000. So beware, caveat emptor. Caveat emptor. And finally, the wages, production worker wages, working folks, middle class, blue collar, hard hats, etc. Their wages increased 6.4% over the past year. That's about the same as the prior month. I think it was down a tick. Uh, But, you know, again, recall the CPI is rising at 8.6. So 6.4% is, you know, a couple percentage points in negative territory. In effect, working people are being paid more, 
right? But their wages are buying less. Dollars have been devalued because of the high inflation rate. Disposable income after inflation is down 3.3% for the past year. So my own view is, caveat emptor, beware. We're headed towards a recession if we're not already in one. And many other measures like real income and real wages and real retail sales are showing that. So uh, take a quick break here. And when we come back, I want to talk a little about the stupidity of the latest Build Back Smaller Democratic package. I say save America and kill this bill. Save America and kill this silly bill. I'm Cutler. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to touch on one other subject. We're going to bring in former OMB director Russell Vogt, uh, served under Mr. Trump. Talk about this at greater length. Russ is a great expert. Uh, I started my career as an OMB deputy for the economy under Ronald Reagan. I think I was uh, 15 years old. Anyway. There is this effort by Biden and the Democrats, particularly Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer, to generate a reconciliation budget bill that would spend roughly another trillion dollars and raise taxes on large and small businesses for about another trillion dollar tax hike. It's being referred to as Build Back Smaller, BBS. And it is a terrible idea. The additional spending will raise the inflation rate, and the tax hikes will deepen the recession. It is as though the Biden Democrats have learned nothing in the last year. You know, recall, of course, in March of 2021, They passed a $2 trillion spending bill, and uh, that was one of the key triggers for this rabid inflation. And the Federal Reserve supported that bill and proceeded to buy the debt that the government spent, the federal government spent, deficit finance, the Fed bought the bonds, pumped up the money supply, and that aided and abetted the inflation. It's like, here they go again. Here they go again. The spending would steepen inflation. The tax hikes would deepen the recession. It's crazy. And although we don't know all the details yet, I mean, they're going to spend on the Green New Deal. They're going to spend on uh, boosting Obamacare subsidies. They're going to spend on more Medicaid subsidies. And Lord knows what, you know, when this thing finally gets fleshed out, if it ever does. They're going to tax small business. They're going to tax LLCs. They're going to tax subchapter S, okay? Which is, you know, basically small American business run this economy. They want to extend the 3.8% net investment tax. That was originally that was originally put in Obamacare to finance Obamacare, but but they at that time, they did not tax the pass-through companies. Again, the LLCs and wholly owned proprietorships and so forth, subchapter S. So now they want to go 
extend that and hit all of the so-called pass-through companies. Allegedly, allegedly to boost uh, or reinforce Medicare. And by the way, Medicare drug controls would be part of this. That will do great damage to our brilliant pharmaceutical and biotech companies, which, by the way, produced uh, the vaccine uh, in the Trump operation warp speed. We'll talk about that with Russ in just a minute. But it's a terrible idea. I don't know if it can get through. I don't even know if they can get uh, reconciliation judges to accept it. Once it goes to the House, you can bet all the crazy lefties in the House will increase or try to increase spending and try to increase uh, taxes. But it is simply a terrible bill. It's like, here they go again. They've learned nothing. And it will do even more damage to this economy than they have already done. And in 18 months, they've taken a strong economy and pushed it into a high inflation recession. The worst of all worlds. Milton Friedman called it inflationary recession. It's insane. And that's why I will say again and again, save America and kill the bill. We'll take a quick commercial break here. And bring on my good friend, Russell Vogt, former OMB director under Trump, and talk about this insanity. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm trying to save America. I love this country. That's the reason we must kill the bill. All right? Please stick around, folks. Everybody, stick around. Live stream us. WABCradio.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. We'll be right back. Saving America, killing the bill. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We bring in my great friend and uh, former Trump colleague, Russ Vogt. Russ was the OMB director. He's president now of the Center for Renewing America. Russ, uh, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Always my pleasure, Larry. And how is the brilliant and beautiful Mary Vogt? (laughs) <laughs> she is doing wonderful. She is out trying to save this country as we speak, and uh, th- that is nothing new. <laughs> yeah, No, no, I know. It's uh, good. We need her. Um, so, Russ, uh, I want to save America and kill this bill, the so-called Build Back Smaller, with big taxes and high spending. Uh, for openers, I, I know you followed this. You were on the TV show last night talking about some of it. We have a little more time here. Um what do you make of this, okay? You're looking at it. You're seeing who the players are. Joe Manchin's going to break my heart if he, if he goes through with this because he was so good uh, to kill the $5 trillion original bill, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you make of this, Russ? Uh, mine as well, Larry, in the sense of uh, hoping that Joe Manchin stays strong. I mean, uh, there had always been this possibility because he had put out, you know, that even in the midst of these uh, inflation numbers going up, that he would accept a bill in the neighborhood of one and a half trillion dollars. Now, that had been a a level that he set um, kind of as a negotiating premise, unconnected to real world activities in the economy that has worsened. Um, And one of the great things about Joe Manchin thus far is that he, unlike most politicians, has allowed his bottom lines to be adjusted by a real world market. But we have uh, a problem in that right now, it does seem that they are making progress towards a deal. 
in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars um, that would be funded uh, with tax increases uh, on small businesses uh, in trying to, you know, quote, uh, those that are kind of limited liability corporations uh, that we know them as small businesses by raising their Medicare tax. When they raise the Medicare tax, that's just another form of taxation. That's not some kind of special tax that doesn't hurt the economy, and it doesn't necessarily go to Medicare either. Uh, they are working on the, kind of the Medicare uh, price control portion of this that would be go for much further than you and I were comfortable with in the Trump administration and actually get into the, the, the notion of negotiating prices in a way that would completely hurt our pharmaceutical industry. And then there's a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, and they're not close, but they are making uh, seeming progress, and there is a possibility that this could be a bill that's considered during the month of August or month of July before they, they recess for August. And so we've got to really be diligent in, in saving America and killing this new version of the bill. Uh, Russ, you know, go back uh, a few months when the, the, the so-called slimmed down ver- version was, I think, around $2 trillion. But when people looked at it, uh, including the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, they realized that it was a phony scoring because they had, uh, you know, one time or one year or one to two year spending plans that really, once they were in, would be would be permanent over 10 years. And so the CBO came out and says, no, it actually would be $5 trillion and it would not be paid for uh, God forbid any of that happened. But the point is, I, I, I don't have enough information, but um, I'm just worried that even a trillion dollars, because Manchin has said he could accept a trillion, but it'll, it, it might be a phony trillion dollars. They got a lot of spe- They got these crazy right renewable uh, tax credits, uh, which drains revenues, as you well know. And, you know, all these, they got a lot of spending subsidies. As I said, they got Obamacare in there. They got Medicaid in there. Lord knows what they have. I'm, you know, this could be much bigger over 10 years than they're letting on. I, I think you can take that to the bank. I mean, they, that's, the, that's the part they haven't shown Joe Manchin seemingly from the press reports and some of our internal conversations with the Senate. They, they've shown him the, the part of, of how they might raise revenues, and he seems to be interested in that. But they have not shown – and he is sensitive on the gimmicks. He has, he has walked the, the deal on that notion alone. But you are entirely right The earlier versions – uh, would have artificial sunsets on the spending portion. And, of course, they never have artificial sunsets with regard to the revenue and the tax increases that cripple the economy. So I, I, I do believe that there is much to be done, and our ability to, to defeat this is strong. Um, Joe Manchin does seem to be someone that says, notwithstanding what I might have said in one context, I'm not going to be bullied into that when – economic numbers continue to come out on inflation, on growth, and I think we're going to have more bad news on both of those. That has seemingly dictated his uh, his decisions, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful about this. You know, he's a member of the Democratic Party. It's very hard when your party is making something a priority not to talk to people and not to negotiate, but I, I think uh, we've got a real significant opportunity to kill this bill uh, as we have done for the last year and a half. 
Yeah, by the by, uh, and I think you were part of this, we're resurrecting the America First Policy Institute uh, Save America Coalition. We've already started conference calls. We're already running radio ads in West Virginia. Uh, I think we'll do more. We'll probably go on TV to do it. And we got about 100 groups in that coalition, and it worked pretty well. Steve Moore really was the quarterback. Um, In some ways, I was the spokesperson. But we had a lot of strong people in that coalition from conservative groups that you know well. So we're working on that. You know, Russ, go back. uh, Tell me about this. They're going to raise taxes. By the way, they're going to raise taxes on uh, major corporations. So they want a 15% minimum tax on a book value basis, you know, which means no deductions, you know, not an IRS tax basis, book value, which uh, some people have looked at and said that would effectively raise the top rate that the Trump administration brought from 35 to 21. It would effectively raise it to 28 or 30% because they're going to take out the deductions and the credits. Then they're going to use that money plus the investment uh, tax on small business pass through. And somehow they're saying $200 billion will go to Medicare. Now, I don't, you know, you mentioned it. We talked a bit last night on the TV show. How are they going to do this? How do we know it's going to go to Medicare? It's going to go to general revenues. The hospital fund has always been done by payroll taxes, uh, which goes right in. How do you you designate? Do you earmark? How do you write that up? Yeah, this is this is kind of something that if you're in the business world and you come into government, you think it's working as if you have different savings and checking accounts. But that's not the way it works in the federal government. The the way these trust funds work in the government is that they're they're notional. So money comes in through taxes and they are and certain revenue generators are credited to a trust fund. But it's not like this trust fund exists in like a 401k and earns money and investment and somehow it's hard to take money out of it. That's that's not the way it works. They they that money sits in the general revenue. And it is spent out as it comes in. And so to the extent that we are uh, not adjusting uh, the, the real cost of the Medicare program in a fundamental way that would preserve it, all you're really doing is creating more money there uh, to imp- improve your deficits while you spend out the money on, you know, woke and weaponized government elsewhere. So. This notion that this is going to artificial, this is going to extend the trust fund, yeah, on a paper basis, but in a real sense, not really. Yep. Yep. And the reconciliation referee, or whatever her name is, she might not even buy it. I mean, they're trying to sell, you know, to to save Medicare, which is a kind of you know apple pie and motherhood issue. Yeah, let's save Medicare. But I don't. I don't. I mean, I think that's a fraud. I mean, I. I just think that's a, a phony patina, for political reasons. I don't, they could spend. They could spend this tax money on any damn thing they want. They could get around to putting some of it into Medicare if there's an emergency in the next uh, four or five years. Sure, but that that money is you know fungible. It goes into right. general revenues. <laughs> it's fun. Right. It's money. If that money's coming in right now, it's going to be spent out right now, and right. then they're going to make a notional check in the in the in the trust fund ledger, 
that says it's owed to Medicare and that's going to have to be paid back. But nothing has really changed in a fundamental, real sense that we all live in the real world. Yeah, I mean, this is um, what they'll do is more deficit spending. That's what they're going to do. Now, Joe Manchin says it has to be paid for. And he always insisted about pay fors. But, 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 then he said, well, we have to pay, we have to pay for half of it. All of a sudden, it went to half. And I go back to these uh, uh, investment tax credits for renewables. I mean, first of all, the original bill back in uh, March of 2021 had a lot of money, you know, for climate change, renewables, all this Green New Deal stuff. Then, remember, the infrastructure bill, more than half of that bill was aimed again at the Green New Deal renewables. And this thing, they're going to do it again as much as they can get, and it won't be paid for. I mean, I don't want any of it, don't get me wrong. But but if it comes in, it won't be paid for. That's why I'm so puzzled by Manson playing along. Now, you said an important thing. Joe meets with him in the caucus and says he does weigh in on some things, but the context may not be what the left wants it to be. Uh, maybe that's going on now, but I don't know. I see, you know, more deficit spending. I don't see pay-fors. I don't either, um, and I don't think they're going to materialize. And in Washington, we haven't had real pay-fors in a long time. Um, they tend to be accounting gimmicks um, and, and uh, offsets that are already current law, and you're just extending those into into the future. So we'll see. I don't believe it. Um, you know, I, my hope is that, um, you know, he pulls up from the brink and realizes not just that this does nothing for his financial goals of the economy and keeping it, 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 it healthy or getting it healthier, but that he realizes that to the extent that they're doing these renewable subsidies and in any aspect of the climate change agenda, it is a g- direct threat to the center of gravity of oil and gas exploration, which is the lifeblood of our economy, and that that should go – you know, he may have some small victory in what they are not able to put in this, and he can claim credit for that. But that's not going to help 10 years down the road when they have created all the subsidies that then dictate future mandates that we know they want to put in place. Is there a state in the union more dependent on coal – and by the way, natural gas than West Virginia. I mean, what's he thinking? Yeah. I know. I mean, that's that's <laughs> the disconnect that you know that we all look at and say, on what planet would you consider to to go down this path? And you know, uh, I'm, we got to hope that the devil's in the details and the details scare them off. So, Russ, um, you're working on a balanced budget plan. Can you give us a couple of thoughts on that? Sure. You know, this is a joint project that you and I are working on, and we're going to have a a big coalition on it. And you and I could probably do this in a long weekend, but the state (laughs) of our economy uh, is such that, you know, and the Biden administration continues to put us in a hole. So it's going to be hard. But, you know, what we're putting together is a plan to balance and tend um, and to really focus and make this a, a, a budget that could actually get done. Um, not because it's informed uh, with the way that the American people would balance their books, which would be to go and get rid of the discretionary budget first 
that is, I call it woke and weaponized government. Um, it's, you know, the American people know that when they, this isn't just the Department of Education that's educating their kids, it's educating with CRT infused cultural Marxism. This is an environmental uh, agency, EPA, that's not really just making sure we have clean rivers and, and clean lakes and clean air, but that is actually criminalizing landowners for building ponds on their on their ranch in violation of the waters of the United States. So it's weaponized. And so mm. we want to go out that with a reckless abandon, and we want to have the types of uh, uh, policies that get people back in the workforce so that they had experienced the dignity of work and they're getting off the sidelines. And we believe that as we head in that direction, we will really be able to balance the budget and do it in a way that the political class, particularly if it's a Republican majorities and a future Republican administration, can do it without having to go at, uh, with reckless abandon, some of the earned uh, entitlement commitments that have been made to beneficiaries. Now, we're going to have to touch mandatory spending, and you know we did that in the Trump administration, uh, but my hope is that we will be able to uh, have a, a trajectory of balance like we did in the Trump administration, build off of those works uh, with while also being cognizant of the fact that seniors have been told uh, that they needed to come with, when there were surpluses in these trust funds that they were going to be the ones that both funded all of this government, and then when the, there was no more money left, they were also going to be the first in the chopping block. And and I think that is a, a something that the D.C. political class has not come to recognize that President Trump did. And we're going to try to be uh, honor the sentiment of that of that notion as we mm-hmm. kind of construct this, given where we are in the economy. Russ, last one: it, Will there be room? to make the Trump tax cuts permanent so it's a growth budget? We have to. I mean, we have to. There's no – you can't balance the budget without, you know, 3%, uh, 4% growth. It's mm-hmm. just not possible. And so mm-hmm. you've got to extend the tax cuts because they're the foundation of the economic growth that's necessary. And so growth won't get us all the way, but we can't get there without growth, nor would we want to because that's real people's lives and, and, and their ability to put uh, food on their family table. Terrific stuff. Terrific stuff. Russ Vogt, President, Center for Renewing America, former OMB director, great friend. Thank you, Russ. We'll talk soon. I appreciate it very much. Folks, you heard it. And uh, we could have a Republican balanced budget plan. And if Kevin McCarthy wins the House and if uh, Mitch McConnell gets the Senate back, they can start working on it probably need the White House of 24 to get it all done, but they can start. And they sure can stop the bad stuff. That's the key. Stop the bad stuff. But in the first uh, goal, save America. Kill this bill. Make it real simple. I'm Larry Kudlow. Up next, by the way, on the other side of the break is David Bernhardt, former Interior Secretary. He's going to talk about the mess that Biden has created with fossil fuels and power and high-priced gasoline. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. We're going to turn our attention to the energy crisis in the United States. I mean, here's a piece of good news. Gasoline prices 
are now down to four dollars and seventy cents. The peak was five bucks. That's nationwide. There's plenty of states in the country with much higher gasoline prices, but we are in trouble. We are also spending our strategic petroleum reserves, which should be reserved for energy security and national security. Biden is using it to bring down prices because he hates fossil fuels, wants to end fossil fuels, so he's using this. So 40% of that SPRO, 40% will have been depleted. And it really hasn't done much for prices. That's the point. When this thing started, $78.50 oil, oil still over 100 and gas prices were $3.40 when it started back in uh, late 2021. And as I say, it's $4.70, down from the high, but still very high. So that ain't worked. It's all it's done is weakened our national security. And in general, the attack on fossil fuels is doing great harm to our economy. So we bring in David Bernhardt. He's a former Secretary of the Interior, and he is uh, now working with uh, the America First Policy Institute. Uh, David, thank you for doing this. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Larry. Uh, we're going to spend the whole half hour together, if you can. <laughs> this is a lot, this is so much to talk about. Um, let me begin uh, with um, your successor, former House member Deb Halland over in the Interior Department. Uh, the leasing season or the leasing decision season is uh, among us. And the way I read it is, uh, first of all, there could be no new leases at all. If there are any leases, there'll be a small amount, way below the Trump baseline. No, no offshore in the Atlantic, no offshore in the Pacific, maybe something in the Gulf of Mexico, maybe something in Alaska, although they've already turned against Alaska. Anyway, you used to make these decisions at the Interior Department. What do you make of what uh, these decisions look like now under Ms. Holland and President Biden? Well, uh, as as normal, you uh, are spot on with your facts. I mean, here here's the reality. Um, you know, from my perspective, the Biden administration's hostility towards uh, American produced oil and gas uh, really seems to have no bounds. And I'm convinced that they simply do not see the benefit of American production for the American consumer, for the American economy, for our national security, and even for the global uh, environment. And um, what they have done with this plan is uh, the Friday before the 4th of July, uh, for the first time um, uh, ever, they missed the deadline uh, to get a plan out before um, the plan, the old plan expired. So the old plan expired. They rolled out this proposal. And as you said, um, they took um, a large swath um, of, the, of the, you know, all of the Atlantic, all of the Pacific and said no leasing there. And then they said maybe maybe there'd be leasing in the Gulf of Mexico. And so they laid out a proposed schedule, but they were very, very clear that they may not um, proceed with that proposed leasing schedule. And that is really um, an unprecedented statement. And, you know, my initial view of it is, is simply that um, they looked at the, where the energy prices were um, and their reaction was, to essentially punt. They didn't want to make the hard decision of saying, 
hey, there's definitively not going to be leasing. Um, and so they put out this possibility to kind of assuage both sides. And, you know, they did that in the context. You said, you know, gas is down a little bit at 470 today. Uh, but to put that in context, you know, when the economy was roaring in 2019, um, the average price of gasoline um, this time uh, in 19 would have been about $2.80. Mm. So it's still very, very high. And so they're trying to be sensitive to it. But, but I think it comes down to this decision and a decision uh, on the Permian re- regarding uh, a potential examination of non-attainment. I think those actual decisions highlight the reality that the Biden administration has placed activists, climate activists, in mo- many of these political appointment jobs, and they're driving one direction, and that direction is – fundamental hostility to American produced energy. And that's, that's just their policy. You know, they have to have a few rhetoric uh, statements every once in a while. They have to find ways to punt. But in this particular case with this leasing program, they did not want to make a decision to say no, but they certainly didn't want to take no off the table at this time. You know, I'm reading your great interview with uh, Fox uh, Business website. Uh, Former top Trump official rips Biden administration's recent oil drilling proposal, reducing lease sales. And um, you, it's a a, coined a great phrase, climate activism uh, beats energy security. I mean, that's really what's going on here. And David, I would just add to that. To me, energy security has a lot to do with national security. Oh, Absolutely. And so, you know, maybe you can talk about your your thought process, because it's you've made it in very stark, clear, simple terms what the issue is. Radical climate activism beats energy security, beats national security. And the Bidens don't seem to care. Right. They're gimmicks. They're taking 40 percent, depleting 40 percent of our SPRO, which is there for national security purposes. They don't care about that. They're just trying to manipulate prices. And as you've said, they don't care about new leases. And I'd only add to that, David, uh, they're not given any permits anyway, right? There are no permits for drilling. There are no permits for pipelining. There's no permits for refinery. They don't care. You've heard that all week on your show from your guests. And that is that is the reality. And, you know, the real the real harm here at the end of the day is is to first off the American consumer who is harmed by these policies right out of the gate, and that's obvious to everyone. But it's also tremendously harmful to these local communities in areas like Louisiana that, you know, they they are dependent on these um, economic activities. And what you're doing with not leasing and not issuing permits is simply not letting that um, economic activity thrive. And then when you look at the world um, if you look at the world market and you, if you look at the uh, Energy Information Administration today, what they say about the future is for the next two years, um, they think world production is going to be flat. And where do they see growth? They see growth in the Permian um, primarily driving world production. Um, otherwise, world production is flat. And then at the same time, what do we have? We have the Environmental Protection Agency um, beginning to focus like a laser 
on the Permian all at the same time. It makes absolutely no sense. And you, you were in the White House and you got to see the transformative benefit President Trump had in negotiating LNG deals, enhancing, enhancing American security and enhancing the American economy. And that was a very powerful a national security and foreign policy tool to use. And the notion that we'd be trying to um, move backwards just makes absolutely no sense on any policy level. This is one of Trump's greatest achievements. Open the spigots. That was his problem. But he he saw it as, you know, domestic enhancement for the economy, but he also saw it as national security. You know, you and I heard him so many times, uh, essentially begging these Europeans uh, to realize just how dependent they are on Russia, begging them to open up uh, facilities to take our LNG exports. Um, You know, Merkel, right? Merkel of Germany said, yeah, we will. She started it. And then the minute the minute the the 2020 election was over, she killed it. Okay, and other things, pipelines that we wanted to run up through. Anyway, I'm going to take a break, David, and I want you to please stay with me and come back. I want to talk about your Permian Basin concerns. This is the EPA ozone regulations. I don't think they have the authority to do it. Maybe the Supreme Court decision would hopefully stop that. I had Governor Abbott of Texas on this week, and he said he's going to take local state action to protect the the Permian. According to some, the Permian produces 43% of our oil. 43%. That's exactly right. It's 43% of daily production. You got that spot on, Larry. So they want, so the EPA wants to close that down. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's unimaginable. I mean, you could be talking about 15 million jobs. It'll destroy Texas, for heaven's sakes. Pretty incredible. <laughs> I just don't believe it. Anyway, we'll come back, take a quick break, come back, talk some more about the EPA authority to ozone. And what is the impact of the Supreme Court decision? Uh, 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 West Virginia versus uh, EPA. I think it uh, pinned EPA's ears back, but I want to hear you talk about that too. So, folks, we got Dave Bernhardt, former Interior Secretary. He's now helping out the America First Policy Institute. I'm Larry Kudlow. Save America. Kill the bill. Save America. Shackle the EPA. I could go on forever, but I got a commercial break. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are talking with David Bernhardt, the distinguished former Secretary of the Interior during the Trump years, uh, presently helping out with the America First Policy Institute and an old friend. Uh, the Biden's attack on uh, on fossil fuels, which, by the way, is the Bidens are attacking all of business and industry, uh, this regulatory socialism that they're engaged in, central planning coming from Washington and the um, unelected bureaucrats, but we are focusing on energy because that's been the worst part. Uh, David Bernhardt, um, walk me through. Here's the um, the uh, EPA is going after uh, new tough restrictions on ozone. They're going to use ozone. Uh, the Obama Clean Power Plant was sort of that was blown up by the Supreme Court decision. That's good. But they're trying to now use tight ozone standards to indirectly regulate 
carbon from fossil fuels. And um, they're going right after the Permian Basin, as you noted before the break. Now, can this be stopped? Greg Abbott, Governor Abbott, who's an old friend, a smart guy, he told me on TV the other night he can stop it using state laws. And the Supreme Court decision is essentially saying uh, without congressional laws, uh, the EPA has to give way to state laws. And there aren't any congressional laws, and they're not going to get any congressional laws through to to, to uh, deal with this. But what happens with ozone and the Permian? Can it be stopped? Well, I think you have to start with one, one of the, you know, the reasons the Permian has thrived is, you know, first, great geology, right? That That was critical. But also... The Permian is largely state-regulated. It's private land. It has a very stable regulatory regime. And and then now you have the um, EPA um, and the activists at EPA saying, look, uh, we're going to go after this like a laser focused on whether or not they're obtaining the um, appropriate uh, ozone requirements. And in doing that, they do have authority. The state has authority to push back, and the state will. Um, the, 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 the real challenge here, I think, is um, that, it, that it creates um, a great deal of hostility and uncertainty, which is really the point of, um, of efforts like this. At the end of the day, they drive uh, investment away. They drive um, you know, investors who don't want to be um, in the business of fighting City Hall when making their investment, investment. And that's happening across the energy sector because of the hostility that, um, that the administration has. And we've seen um, typically when you have prices rising like this, you would see additional investments in efforts for production. And those have not been um, nearly as high. Now, the true consequence of this ozone effort is it could have a tremendous impact on um, individual rigs and, and rig counts out there. And that, you know, would further um, uh, frustrate additional production. And so that is the real challenge. Abbott, Abbott has arguments and Abbott has some strength. Now, whether this decision, whether the EPA decision, EPA versus West Virginia, um, is the decision that, that would um, push back on this or not remains to be seen, but it very well may because Justice Roberts was very, very clear in laying out why um, the Supreme Court took the action it did in rejecting uh, the radical clean power program. And he said, he said essentially this, that we are addressing a particular and recurring problem and what was that problem that they're addressing? The particular and recurring problem they're addressing is federal agencies asserting highly consequential power mm. beyond what Congress could reasonably be understood to have granted. And that's what they were going after. They had seen agency after agency um, doing this, and he lays out the standard when there's a um, agency asserting highly consequential power beyond what Congress could reasonably be understood to have, have granted. We're not going to uphold that action. And, um, you know, in the case of the Clean Power Plan, they had a law 
that was nearly 50 years old, and it had never been interpreted the way the Obama administration proposed to interpret it. Congress had rejected climate change um, legislation, and this had an enormous impact on the economy. Now, fast forward to the Permian, 43% of daily production, depending on how dramatic they want to be, um, that could be tremendously consequential. And so there may be something here, but there's certainly the, what Roberts has done with this case is laid out very clearly, not only to EPA, but to all federal agencies. Look, what you agency, don't be asserting a highly consequential power beyond what we think Congress could have been uh, reasonably understood to have granted. And that is that is a real shot across the bow to the agencies to be judicious with their actions and authority. Now, I have no faith, no faith that the Biden administration will get that message. But the second message was to the, the lower courts. You need to be sorting this out. Right. Don't allow this peculiar right. and recurring problem to continue. And it's also a warning to Congress that, hey, you need to write clear statutes and don't just punt to agencies uh, when a problem comes up and think they can fix it. Now, the overall result of that case, as you know, is a great result for democracy because it says the um, power for highly consequential decisions rests with the um, elected representatives uh, of America. And that means that the American people can hold those people accountable where they can't hold a bureaucrat accountable. Yeah, yeah uh, that's a great rundown, by the way. Thank you for that. You know, uh, John Roberts has always been very good on uh, economic regulation. I, I, I may not agree with Absolutely. him on other things, but that's, I, I mean, I've known him a, a, a good many years, and he's always been good on that. One of the points you just made, which I think is key and probably will determine the fate of the Permian, and it might also determine the fate of the Marcellus, right, the Bakken, uh, all these big oil reservoirs, is the lower courts, as you described. Now, the state officials will act in their own best interest. So Greg Abbott, for example, in Texas, you know, he and his attorney general will do whatever it takes to keep the Permian open. I mean, he was quite clear about that. That's right. He's willing to fight. That's right. And, and that's his nature. I mean, he's a uh, very good governor. But the, your point about the l lower courts may be absolutely crucial, David. Absolutely. And um, and it may take the courts, you know, a few uh, times to get it right, to be honest with you, as um, they work these back. But what we do know with this Roberts decision, this was a 6-3 decision. And I think that, the, that all six of those uh, members on the, for this decision are going to be very steadfast in this issue. And um, and that is significant for um, the regulatory reining in the regulatory overreach that has consistently occurred um in this administration and it really means uh, i'm very hopeful of the decision because i think it means greater accountability and it means that legislators may have to deal with the issues of the day and decide them and reach compromise and remember if we're going to impose if if if, if the american people are going to have imposed on them a highly consequential decision, that compromise of legislating should be where that where that um, policy is reconciled. And that yeah. is the right place for it. You know, one just one quick point. We're run out of time. But um, the Baker Hughes 
rig count, David, you know, it, it has not recovered despite record right. prices. So that's to your point. David Bernhardt, former Interior Secretary, helping out with the America First Policy Institute. Can't thank you enough, David Bernhardt. We will talk soon. Folks, please stick around. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk about China and stopping China and stopping uh, and keeping the Trump tariffs in China with Gordon Chang on the other side of this break. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I am Larry Kudlow, and I want to turn our attention to China and the threat that the Biden administration is going to remove the Trump tariffs that were put in place on China to, um, well, to get the phase one trade deal, but also to try to keep it as insurance. We don't know whether that thing has been properly implemented or not. And there are some other issues here, too. So we bring in Gordon Chang, who lived and worked in Asia for 20 years, a longtime commentator, author, his recent book, The Great U.S.-China Tech War. Uh, And Gordon, welcome to the show. And, you know, that tech war you write about, that is precisely the heart of the Trump actions to stop China from uh, intellectual property theft and just as important, we talked about this on the TV show the other night when you were on, the forced transfer of technology. We can, uh, I mean, technology innovation is the heart of the American economy in many ways. And we can't let China steal it. And I don't understand why the Bidens want to give China anything with respect to pulling back on tariffs. I didn't understand the solar panel decision. And I don't know whether it, it, how big this pullback will be. Uh, the papers are saying $10 billion, but it could be more. You are right about this. And um, what is to be done? What is the threat here? The threat here, Larry, is exactly as you mentioned, and that is the theft of America's future. America has a strong society. It has a strong military. It has a great economy because of American innovation, but China has been stealing it. And many people forget, not you, but many people forget that uh, President Trump imposed the tariffs under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 as a remedy for the theft of intellectual property. We don't know exactly how much China's been stealing, but John Ratcliffe, when he was director of national intelligence, estimated at about $500 billion a year. Some people in industry say more, some say less, but we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars annually. Trump himself put out a very strong statement opposing the removal of these tariffs uh, for any number of of reasons. Um, Here's just a thought. First of all, economists have said the tariffs had no impact on inflation, pretty much outside the White House. Nobody buys the argument that it'll help lower inflation by removing the tariffs. So put that aside. Um, what, my question has always been here, why do we want to give or reward China for anything right now? Uh, 
They have been hostile. I want to talk about spying raised by FBI Director Ray, uh, even things like TikTok, which is basically scooping up all this personal information, goes right back to the Chinese Communist Party. What, what in the world can Biden be thinking here? And, and by the by, you know, if you, you, you in a battle, you know, if, if you make a concession to one side, you expect the other side to, to come back and give you something. China's not going to give us anything. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, that's not the way the Chinese operate. <laughs> right. We're Americans, and so we operate under the assumption that if we're nice to somebody, they'll be nice to us. Yeah. Chinese don't think that way, especially Chinese communists. Their view is we will do something, but only if we're forced to. And that really means that the Biden administration shouldn't be giving gifts to China. It should be imposing costs. If they impose costs, we might get something in return. And that is something that President Trump understood. He broke five decades of failed engagement policy. And he said, look, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm imposing costs on China. And guess what? China started to come around. Now, I think that they didn't come around far enough. I think President Trump should have been tougher. But the point is, Trump understood the way the Chinese think Biden doesn't. Yeah, you know, that's a uh, Lighthizer. Bob says that, that um, really the Trump, uh, the Trump policy rang the bell on China as our adversary, not as our friend, not as some collegiate, you know, capitalist country working with us. He rang the bell on the China threat. I mean, in some sense, that was his overriding uh, victory. Yes, and and right now we have a president um, who doesn't call China an adversary. He doesn't even use the term that China uses for us, which is enemy, by the way. Um, All that Biden will say is that we're in competition with China. We're not, Larry, because the Chinese don't believe in the existing liberal international order, as Brian Deese, the, uh, your predecessor or your successor, has said. What China believes is that they should rule the world and they should also rule the near parts of the solar system because they believe that mm-hmm. Mars and Moon should be part of the People's Republic of China. That's absurd, but that's the way they think. So we're not competing with these guys. We are in a fight with these guys over what the shape of the world will look like. You know, uh your bride, who, who I think is tougher on this than either of us, you know, she pulled me aside uh, the other night at that uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Dinner, and she makes the point, and it's really, it is China that broke the liberal world order, at least with respect to trading and other things. It was China who broke that. It wasn't us. It was them. We're just trying to retaliate or, you know, somehow make it easier. They're the ones. And we let them in the World Trade Organization, and they proceeded to break every trading law under the sun. Yes, and the one that you pointed out just now is really important because we don't talk about it anymore, and that is forced technology transfer, right. which, by the way, is a violation of World Trade Organization rules. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, um, we did not complain about it, and that's up to us. I mean, we've we've – We've got to make sure that uh, we enforce those rules. But the point is, China has violated these rules, and they violated more than just the forced technology rule. They violated just about all of their commitments. Yes. So uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray is trying to warn. Uh, I'm looking at an article. Uh, 
it's actually the so AP Associated Press, American British leaders raise fresh alarms about Chinese espionage. Now, this is not an, exactly a new uh, issue, but, um, you know, here's, here's Chris Ray doing this, uh, reaffirming concerns in denouncing economic espionage and hacking operations by China, as well as the Chinese government's effort to stifle dissent abroad. So they are spying everywhere. And that's why I also bring in this collateral issue, uh, Gordon Chang, because, you know, the, the TikTok issue. All right. You know, kajillions of people are on TikTok. They get the individual information from all these users. That information goes to Beijing. That information goes to the Chinese Communist Party. Why haven't we booted them out of here? We haven't booted them out of here because Biden is president. President Trump tried to do uh, one thing in his last year, and that was to force a sale of TikTok to right. an American party, which ended up being Oracle. But he also um, went uh, issued an executive order to ban TikTok and WeChat, um, which is a, a different type of Chinese app. Um, Biden, though, one of the first things he did, his Justice Department went to, I think it was the Ninth Circuit, um, but he went to one of the circuit courts, and he actually uh, withdrew the case uh, of trying to ban TikTok and WeChat. And we know that TikTok has repeatedly lied to the American public about its assurances that data was kept in the United States. We know that from the June 17th BuzzFeed reporting that over a period of five months, starting in September of last year, that there were audio recordings of meetings where American employees of TikTok said they couldn't access the data, and the people who could access, access the data, they were in China. Mm. Yes, right. Now, um, Robert O'Brien, National Security Advisor, makes this point over and over again. These companies are instrumentalities of the Chinese Communist Party. And the Chinese Communist Party has set rules, and we know, it's been very clear, that they have the authority to force these companies to report information to them. And if you don't, you go to jail. I mean, they're, they're, and so we are not doing anything about that. And we should. As we should. There are two reasons why all of these companies in China, including TikTok's parent, uh, ByteDance, are under a compulsion to spy. First of all, there's the Communist Party's top-down system where nobody is allowed to disobey the Communist Party. But the party, incredibly, has even um, put this into law. China's 2017 National Intelligence Law, Articles 7 and 14, require yeah. every Chinese national, every Chinese entity to spy if Beijing demands. Yeah. And that means TikTok is under a compulsion to spy on Americans. Yep. Uh, Gordon Chang, uh, last 30, 40 seconds here. China wants to go to the moon. They want to take over the moon. What do you make of that? Um, that's clear. Um, China says it doesn't want to, but in 2018, the head of China's lunar exploration program talked about denying the moon to other countries. And he also talked about this in connection with Mars. So they believe that the moon and Mars should be part of the People's Republic of China. Isn't that something? I mean, just just think about that. I mean, I think that's absolutely incredible. Anyway, Gordon Chang, thanks very much for the rundown. Uh, best regards to your wife, and we will uh, speak soon. Appreciate it very much, folks. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to bring in John Hartley, 
distinguished economist with the Hoover Institution, and he's going to talk about why the Fed is going to create a recession, and it may be a deep recession. Uh, This is part of the problem. Save America, kill the bill. And now we're in a position where the Federal Reserve is going to conquer inflation and they're going to rip it right through this economy. You hate to see it, but it looks like it's going to happen. So stick around. John Hartley next up. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Yes, I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you, everybody. Um, by the way, you want to you wanna live stream us, internet, wabcradio.com or larrykudlowshow.com. We got a pretty big uh, group on the live stream internet stuff across the country and around the world and throughout the solar system. We have to worry about the solar system, don't we? As Gordon Chang described, the Chinese want to take the moon and Mars. Anyway, just saying, that's something to be beware of. So let's talk to John Hartley, an old friend. He's with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's a research associate at the uh, distinguished Hoover Institute out at Stanford on the West Coast. Uh, John Hartley, welcome. I'm looking at your piece uh, from National Review Online, The Inevitable Fed-Induced Recession. All right? So what goes up has to come down. So the money supply, M2, um, I'll use M2, explodes up for 18 months as the Fed bought the bonds issued by the Bidens uh, and then also in 2020, because of the pandemic stuff, um, they bought them. They bought about 60, 62 percent and the money supply exploded. And that has led to the big inflation. And you're saying it's inevitable now that the Fed is going to check inflation and that's going to drive us into a recession. First of all, do I have your thesis right? And second of all, why does this always have to happen? Why? Yeah, well, thanks, Larry, for having me. I, I, I think uh, that the, basically the core of uh, the thesis, I think, you know, we had this new uh, non-farm payrolls number that came out yesterday. You know, it was very robust, and, you know, we've got these, uh, you know, the labor market that's pretty robust and, and the unemployment rate that's around 3.6%. But, and, you know, that's leading some people to say, you know, that there's no recession and soft landing, but... You know, my counter to that uh, narrative is that I think, you know, history says otherwise and that we're still in the early innings of this, I think, much longer inflation beating ball game. I know you're a big Aaron Judge fan like I am. But, you know, I think you know, we've seen, you know, first quarter GDP, we had a negative uh, number, you know, negative 1.6. You know, the Atlanta Fed now cast is negative 1.2. And, you know, maybe we're seeing a bit of a productivity slowdown uh, for now, you know, in that there's less output uh, you know, per worker hour, even though, you know, the labor market seems a bit robust. But, you know, again, you know, we're in the early stages, early innings of this ballgame. You know, I think core inflation, you know, it's at 6%. Infl- you know, uh, headline CPI is still at 8.5%. And even though, you know, things like WTI are now falling below $100 a barrel, I think, you know, we're going to need a lot more than that to bring, you know, core CPI back down to the Fed's long-term 2% target. And, you know, that's going to require some reductions in in the price of housing. And so, uh, you know, it's important to remember, you know, housing makes up about a third of CPI and even uh, almost uh, about 40% of core CPI. And so I, I think 
If you look at history, the 1950s, the 1960s, the early 80s, the early 90s recession, these were all recessions that were Fed-induced. You know, the Fed was trying to fight inflation of, of that day. And you know, thankfully, you know, we've had this inflation-targeting regime over the past 30 years, but I think what's unfortunately happened is you know, we've had this transitory narrative all the stimulus, you know, the, these um, supply side sort of supply chain disruptions that have gotten us away from this 2% target. And, you know, we can sort of debate, you know, whether the Fed should have, you know, how much early, earlier should the Fed have started raising rates. But I think there's a lot more rate hikes to come. Yep. And the history sort of says that, you know, any time the Fed uh, needs to find inflation like this, you know, it's, it's followed by a recession. You know, John, uh Apart from the excessive federal spending, which the Fed monetized, I think, you know, you're describing an old problem in monetary policy, an old, old problem. And it's this stop and go. You know, now, we beat it. As you say, we had for three decades clear 2% target for price stability. And most of the Fed shares and the FOMC uh, – you know, they said price stability is the cornerstone of economic growth. And that theory was thrown out by this Fed, by the Jay Powell Fed. And so they slammed down the accelerator. Money supply soars, right? Inf- <laughs> then they say, no, no, there's no inflation problem. And then what inflation there is is because of supply shortages or, you know, Biden Biden blames Vladimir Putin. But the reality is all prices are rising. The indexes are rising. And now the Fed is going to – they are crunching down the money supplies, you probably know. I mean, the thing – year-to-year money, uh, John, I think, peaked in late um, 2020, early 21, some such – at about 27%, and now it's down uh, to about 6 or 7% year on year, and I think the last three months it's been flat. So the stop-and-go theory that you're writing about, we're in the stop period, and it's going to crash the economy. And as you also note, and this is so important, guess who gets hurt the most? The least among us. The least among us, Okay. The middle class, yes, but it's the lower middle class and it's the poverty class. They are going to get slaughtered as the Fed uh, adjusts for its prior mistake. Absolutely. And, you know, I think what's a bit unfortunate, too, about this inflationary uh, uh, scenario that we're also seeing is that inflation also hurts the poor the most. Uh, You know, the poor, um, you know, they consume a much bigger fraction of their incomes uh, you know, also um, gas makes up uh, a big uh, gas and food makes up a very disproportionate part of their uh, consumption basket. Uh, but unfortunately, because inflation sort of gotten out of control and that we veered away from this two percent target in the way we have. And we can, again, debate why that's happened. You know, the poor are paying for it sort of on both sides of it at uh, Free Opportunity Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. We've created these inflation inequality indices and you can see that. You know, this is just using government data and breaking it up by income brackets. You can see that inflation rates are higher uh, for you know, those in lower income brackets. And so, unfortunately, what's going to happen now is that they've been paying, you know, a uh, big, bigger part of their incomes, to, you know, for gas and food and, and really bearing the brunt of inflation. And, and now they're going to 
also uh, bear, I, I think, you know, what's going to be like the brunt of, you know, what's going to be, I think, a nasty recession. You know, they've, in general, you know, a greater likelihood of becoming unemployed and so forth. Um, but I think it's, it's really unfortunate. I think we really have to ask this question, you know, how did we get here? And I think this is, you know, partly what you know, you're alluding to is that there was this transitory narrative, uh, you know, which I think was, a, you know, a bit of a cover for, I, I think, you know, additional stimulus. You know, we were talking about Build Back Better and, you know, a few months ago and that, you know, we didn't have to worry about inflation. And, you know, and then we had things like ARP. And, and I think there's a, a healthy debate about what exactly was the cause of all this inflation to begin with. Um, but, you know, the longer, you know, we let inflation get out of control, the more difficult and I think the more painful the recession ultimately uh, will be that, uh, that accompanies the required rate hikes to bring to bring down inflation. Well, um, you know, I think John Hartley, why did the Fed abandon the two percent target? It seems to me that they you know, for three decades, we developed inflation price targeting. This was good. And they held to it, and and Jay Powell abandoned it. And why did they do that? It's like the old saw, John. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? And look how this is going to end badly. Well, it's a great question. You know, I, I you know, I think you have to think about uh, how broken our inflation forecasting has been over the past year or so. You know, we had this long narrative that inflation was just simply going to be transitory. I don't think that these model uh, that these forecasts were coming out of any sort of econometric model, but I think in a way they were sort of created by this sort of narrative, this almost media narrative um, that, you know, everybody just agreed, well, you know, it's all, you you can chalk up everything to, you know, used cars or or whatever the small uh, sort of narrative was. And then over time, things sort of started to bite and it became more than just that and it became housing um and, and many other sort of everyday goods and just the, you know complete price basket but i think you have to ask yourself if for example say uh you know uh president trump had you know won a second term and we saw this inflation spike in in you know may of last year just like we had you know would the media have been promoting this sort of narrative that mm. inflation is just transitory um you know because obviously you know being a sort of political enemy but in many ways promoting this transitory narrative, uh, I, I think, almost gave um, excuses um, not to raise r- rates sooner. I mean, imagine it, you know, all the, you know, the media course that would have blamed, you know, uh, a pre- a President Trump uh, in a second term for this inflation. I think perhaps the Fed would have been a bit more responsive. Yes. Um, but I think it's, you know, it just I think we really need to take a look and, and ask ourselves, why did we get this inflation forecasting so wrong? Yep. Um, and I think there really needs to be yep. a, a serious hard look in terms of yep. how we're thinking about inflation forecasting. It's a very costly mistake is what it is. And uh, maybe we'll learn a lesson, maybe we won't. Anyway, John Hartley, thank you ever so much. Folks, we're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. But here's a big question. Is Elon Musk really pulling out of Twitter Or are there going to be more chapters in this saga? I am Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. We're going to do some stock market work in just a moment. I just want to remind um, 
during the week, Monday through Friday, Fox Business Television. The name of the show is Cudlow, and it's 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And you, if you can't get there at 4, you can call up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR it so you can see it at <laughs> night when you get home. I don't want you to miss a thing. We have to save America and kill the bill and other things as well. Kill, kill the EPA. And um, I won't use the word kill, but shall we just say stop the Biden big government socialism? Anyway, those are our themes. We have here Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist, Hightower Advisors, and Head of Investment Solutions, and Ken Polcari, Managing Partner at Case Capital Advisors and Chief Market Strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. So, kids, welcome back. And um, I want to talk about the stock market and commodities and interest rates. But we need to begin. Get ready, Stephanie. We need to begin with Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Is Elon Musk really pulling out of the Twitter deal? uh, Or is he going to force them to give him better numbers on these phony accounts, the bots and all this nonsense? I mean, I I don't see. Look, you know, I make no bones about it. I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. I don't see how you can buy the thing, buy Twitter, uh, and make a business plan uh, unless you know what their user base really is. And I think Twitter hasn't done that. Uh, that's point number one. Point number two, uh, I'm sure Elon wants a lower price. And point number three, I do believe, I, I have not spoken to him, but I believe he really wants to buy Twitter and make his free speech uh, case and that you can run social media companies on the basis of free speech and still make money. So, I mean, I, th- I, I don't think, Stephanie, I, I think this is just one chapter in this saga. I mean, that's my take. I think he's going to be back. But for the moment, he's out. And I want to say, what, what do you guys think? Steph, what do you think? Well, I think this is it's a it's a circus, right? This 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 is a very very de- uh, dangerous uh, stock to own. Number one, because it's not trading on fundamentals. Number two, I think he should have taken his time in terms of the offer and doing the due right. diligence, like most bankers do, right? Most companies do when they're looking to buy another company. Uh, sure, he wants a lower price because he doesn't know the data and, and we don't know what he actually knows. That's number one. It's also lower because social media stocks have been in the toilet all year long and they've been mm. falling rapidly, right? So I understand why he wants a lower price, but I think the due diligence that he undertook was really very basic and very quick. Um, and uh, who knows how it plays out, but it is, it is a circus, as I mentioned, and, and it's not trading on fundamentals. So if you own this stock or you buy this stock because of Elon Musk, that, you know, that's, that's a very risky play, in my opinion. <laughs> I thought, did, was Morgan Stanley his banker? Who was his banker? Yeah, I think it was Morgan Stanley. <laughs> why, didn't, why didn't they do what you just said they should have done? Because you can't. I mean, they're, they're good bankers, Morgans, but why didn't they do they're it? They're great bankers. They're great bankers. But you know what? It's like Elon Musk is, is Elon Musk. He's going to do what he wants to do. Unfortunately, <laughs> this backfired in his face, and we'll see. We'll see how it all turns out, though. I don't think I, he's done either. I, by the way, let me just jump in because I, I agree with everything you've said, but I think you're right. I, whether or not Morgan Stanley was the banker, or whether or not he started, 
you know, he started this whole thing on his own and then he pulled people in. And to Stephanie's point, uh, I think he just said, look, I want to do it. This is it. I don't want to hear anything about it. And he kind of pushed everybody back, probably against their better judgment, but they couldn't convince him to do otherwise because look how fast it happened. And now now he's sitting here complaining, going, well, they didn't tell me that. Well, honestly, you kind of forgave your your, your right to do all that work because he was so impetuous, right? He wanted to do yeah. it so fast and make the point, and this is what he gets. I don't think he's going away. I think this is all part of the ploy because I think he's trying to get a bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. And I think on Monday the stock's going to be trading. I don't know where it's closed on Friday, but it'll be trading at 20 by Monday. But um, <laughs> I think, but I, he'll I, like that, right? That's well, what he wants. He'll like that. Absolutely <laughs> is what he wants. He's, but, listen, Elon is a disruptor. E- Elon, Elon is the Donald Trump of, uh, right. you know, whatever, Silicon Valley, or he's in Texas now. He's a disruptor. Right. Elon is living proof um, of Joseph Schumpeter's gales of creative destruction. <laughs> that's, that's what Elon Musk is. <laughs> I, yeah. I, does it, I mean, I don't know. Stephanie's right. It's a circus, but it's pretty cool stuff. You got oh, to yeah. admit, the whole world is watching this deal. I, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, you look at the Fo- forget the Fox Business website. The Fox News website has this <laughs> on top. I mean, you know, that, that's usually reserved for, for other things. Uh, yeah. CNBC has it on top. Bloomberg has it on top. I mean, yeah. the right. tragic assassination of Shinto Abe is a major news story, but right with it, right with it is Elon Musk and Twitter. And you got to go, huh? Wait, really? But yeah, that's the deal. Whatever he does. It's like you wake up and you go to Twitter to see what is the latest and greatest on the situation. (laughs) Yeah, right. Do you guys have accounts on Twitter? Do you tweet? Yes. Yes. You know, and Kenny I and I tweet together. I mean, we tweet to each yeah. other, too. Oh, that's great. That's great. You make a lovely couple. That's terrific. <laughs> I tweeted about this show this morning, inviting everyone to join us. Oh, yeah. that is really good. By the way, I used to tweet. I, I tweeted for years. I uh, had a bunch, good bunch of followers. And then I did, when I went into the White House, I, I stopped uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and But since um, I've come back to town uh, I I have not tweeted, I have, so I haven't tweeted in five years basically. As I grew weary, um, I you know I, look yeah. I'm a, obviously a political and economic conservative, and I I was just go, grow weary of all these whack jobs uh, attacking me and saying you know really yeah. weird yeah. nasty thing. I mean I had the followers defended me, but the attackers are so bad and so poisonous. Right. I yeah. just grew, right. grew you know. Uh, yes. Well, yeah. they can do it because they do it behind behind closed doors, right? Because no one really knows whether they have a real name or a fake name, but they can do it because they're not actually doing it right to you, right? They're, they're hidden yeah. behind the yeah. keyboard. Uh, all right. We'll put that. I, I hear, uh, So Kenny Pocari thinks there'll be more chapters. Do you, uh, Steph, more chapters in this saga? Yeah, I do. I absolutely yeah. do. Look, I mean, Kenny's right. If it opens down, tw- if it's at 20, right? I mean, Right. It's not actually even an expensive stock at this point, but you just don't know what the E is, right? You have no idea right. if they're even going to have an E. But if it opens right. down twenty to, to twenty, I mean, then automatically he's got to he's got to make a make a stink on a, on a lower price. Um, it's just what is in the what's in the, who signed what, right? Like we just mm. don't know what he agreed to. So that's right. uh, that's why it, that's right. why and it's you, so uncertain. 
Right, but you saw the story today. The, the, the board is determined now to close this deal at the price at 5420 naturally. Right? Mm-hmm. The stock oh, yeah. ends at 3681 on Friday, on yesterday. So if this thing opens in the 20s, which I think it very well could, if this story continues to build over today and tomorrow, you know, we could see it really collapse on Monday. That board, oh, yeah. that board is so full of it. I mean, they're so dumb. Anyway, who's going to buy Twitter if Elon doesn't buy it? Who wants it? Nobody, because nobody's come up to challenge it. Right. That's the interesting part all through this. It's not like there's some bidding competition. I mean, Twitter is a dud, right? They ran it into the ground because they went far left, you know, censored conservative opinions, blah, 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 blah. And so the thing's collapsed. And if he doesn't buy it, he's the only safety net they have. You know, he's like a, a Greenspan put or something. Who's, he who's could gonna... not. He, they couldn't monetize it. That's the whole problem, right? right? They had these right. enormous expenses, and they, they they thought. Now, look, I, we can say all we want about Facebook, but Facebook figured out how to monetize. And by the way, they're going to figure out how to monetize Reels as well. That's their problem mm. now. Mm. The a TikTok right. competitor, but they'll figure it out. They have proven that investing heavily reaps reward, right? That you can figure out how to monetize what you have. Twitter never did. They never could. They spent right. like. They spent like crazy, and then you, you every quarter there will be a disappointment in one, in one area or the other. I tr- I, trust me, I, I I owned it for a little bit of time, and I made money in it, thankfully, and I got out. But that, it's just uh, they really do need they really do need Musk in there. They really do. Yeah, yeah, I know he's the only thing they got. Yeah, look, it's it may go to twenty, okay, but I'll say this: without Musk, uh, right, the, the, it could go to diff- ten. I was going to say the difference between 20 and zero will evaporate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look at Snap. Look at Snap, right? Right. And they're in a world of hurt right now, and they too can't monetize. So, you know, this is an interesting sector, and it'll be an interesting case study in like 10 years. (laughs) I'm so so happy to hear that. I mean, for me, all, all these socialists, lefties, I'm glad they're in a world of hurt. I want them to hurt. They're lucky that they have Elon Musk, free market, libertarian, free. I mean, Elon Musk. It's not only does he want to buy Twitter for free speech reasons, he then declared that he was going to vote Republican in the elections. I mean, that was like for for the mainstream media, that was the kiss of death. They put him on the enemies list. (laughs) He voted for that Republican gal, the Hispanic gal on the border in Texas. Right. right. He yeah. voted for her. Did to her, by the way, the other day? <laughs> yes, I know. It's just off. I, I'm only laughing it's because off. it's a theater of the absurd. But, yes, you're right. I mean, that's that's what they do. But not you mm-hmm. guys. You guys uh, you guys are okay. You're giving my show credibility. Please stick around. We have <laughs> Stephanie Link, uh, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower, uh, Head of Investment Solutions, and Kenny Polcari, uh, Managing Partner, Case Capital, and Chief Market Strategist, uh, Slatestone Wealth. I'm Larry Cudlow. We'll come back, and we will talk about stocks and commodities and interest rates. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back after this. Now, back to the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we're talking stocks uh, with Stephanie Link and Kenny Polcari. Uh, Kenny, what's your market outlook right now? So I think that we're in for this month is going to be 
a little bit of a bumpy, uh, rough month. We'll get earnings start this week. I think earnings are going to start to come down. I think more importantly, the guidance going forward is going to be weaker than what the market expects. Um, and so, therefore, I think uh, as we move through this season, it's going to be bumpy. Now, that doesn't mean I think the market's going to collapse at all. I think we're going to find support at S&P 3600, which is about, down about you know 200 points from where we are now. I guess where we close on, on Friday, 250 points. Um, I think that's where it wants to find support. But I would caution people as we move into this earnings season uh, to be prepared for numbers and guidance. I think it's going to be weaker than what the expectation is. Yeah, that's um, – so this little – I, I look at this, we've been through the last couple of weeks, of what I consider to be a bear market rally. You may yeah. disagree with that and so forth. But no, no, I don't. I think you're right. The S&P is now down 18% year to date. So it, it's still hovering around the bear market level. Uh, this past week, uh, let's see, the Dow was up 241. The S&P was up 74. The Nas had a really good week, up 507. Anyway, Stephanie Link, what, what's your market outlook? Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, the, there's puts and takes. <laughs> the, the highlights are clearly the jobs market, right? Uh, jobs were strong on, uh, on, on Friday, and, um, and we've now created 2.7 million jobs in the last six months. Wages are still very solid at 5.1%, and down from 5.3 from the last reading, which uh, I don't know if you want to call that peak inflation. It's still high, but uh, it's still good for the consumer. Um, and, uh, and and commodities are uh, and commodities are coming down, and housing is cooling. So so that to me, um, that maybe the inflation start, side of the equation is starting to at least yeah peak. Hopefully it's going to come down, but at the same time you've got strong jobs. So everyone that t- tells me that we're in a recession, I just I have a very hard time reconciling that. It, it, the job market really is very to jolt. We're actually still over 11 million, so there's still a lot of job openings. So to me. I think, you know, this is a hard environment. We, we're down a lot. I think we're discounting a lot of bad news. We have to wait and see what the Fed does. They're going to go to 75 in July. Do they go 75 in September and then maybe take the foot off the gas? Hopefully, but we don't know. That's your one wild card, and that's what makes it hard to get super, super bullish. But I'm not that bearish given that we've already seen these declines and we still have a solid economy. Um, the trouble is wages are rising. The money is worth less because inflation yeah. is rising more. So right. you see in a big drop in real disposable income and real wages. And you're also seeing a big drop. Now, we'll get new numbers, obviously, for the month of June. We'll get those numbers in the next couple of weeks. But uh, real retail sales way down. And um, PCE, real PCE uh, is going to be very soft maybe close to zero. So I, you know, Stephanie, I, I don't, just a, a tiny pushback that I know the payrolls were, were pretty good um, with the prior revisions of the two months, prior two months, it was 300,000. Yep. So that's yep. a good number. But the household employment survey was off 350,000. And that thing has averaged, it's two of the last three months it's had big drops. So I just, I, I'm not sure I understand this labor stuff. Uh, at the moment it's, I, it's, it's definitely confusing for it sure really is. but this is this, we 
got to get people back to work. You know, I mean, this is the whole thing. This is the whole reason why the Fed is doing what they're doing. I mean, uh, we want to get people back to work. We have to get inflation down. We've got to slow the economy. We all know this, though. So if I'm looking at this from the economy, sure, a lot of puts and takes and and a lot of unknowns. But from 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 an investing point of view, I think we're discounting a heck of a lot of bad news. I really do. And yeah. that's yeah, why, you know, especially especially on, like, when you say about retail sales, you know what? I, I totally understand that. But then I go and I look at, let's just say, the XLV, right? Um, sorry, the XLY, rather, the uh, the consumer discretionary ETF. It's down 30% year to date. Right. Don't we know that right. the consumer is taking their foot off the gas, too? Yeah, right. I know. That's right. That's been all the – but I got to ask you a question, Steph, or Larry, either one of you. The, the the issue about getting people back to work, wages are rising. We've got 11 million jobs out there that are available. Why can't we get people back to work? Is it the fact that those jobs are much more technical? We're not educated enough to fill those jobs? Is that the reason that, that we can't get people to come back to work with higher wages and all these job openings? I actually have heard that there there's uh, more more people are are starting their own uh, uh, companies, and they're not going right. back to corporate America, right? So that's number one. And then, of course... We know people that are just out of the labor force. They retired. They, they said right. enough of this. And then, and then of course, you still have that issue at whoever is taking care of the children at home. There's still a lot yeah. of unknown, right? So I think there's yeah. a whole bunch. But I agree with you. It's, it is perplexing. 11 million job openings is a huge, huge number relative huge. to the historical average. Yeah, I get it. Especially I when, especially when companies are paying higher wages and trying to yes. pay bonuses to attract people. I know. I know. I've lost count how many times McDonald's has actually increased wages year to date. I think I lost count after four times. Right? Yeah. I know. Well, bear bear in mind on this, though, you've got um, part of the complexity here. um, The government is still paying out benefits Mm -hmm. one way or another for not not working. There's no work requirements in housing subsidies. And I think uh, that's the problem. Welfare subsidies, food stamp yeah. subsidies. You know, uh, I mean, I wish it weren't true because I, I, I think, you know, I, I think work is holy and I think work is yeah. the fa- fabric of the, of the country. But you got a lot of people who have left the labor force. By the way, the, this, this number, uh, the jobs number yesterday, what, uh, 350,000 people left the workforce. That's yeah. a big. That's a big number. That's and, a big number. And and I acknowledge that the labor market is tight. No question about that. And I acknowledge the the uh, big number of unfilled jobs. But gee whiz, people are leaving. The other thing is, I'll throw this out. Jason Furman, uh, who's a pretty much of a straight shooter, he's a very good economist, friend of mine. Uh, he's an Obama guy. He was a Clinton guy before that. He's you know he and along with Summers has been yelling at the Bidens for all their spending causing inflation. But he has a little section in his report yesterday. Uh, all, a lot of people now are being mandated by their companies to go back to work in the office. Yep. Yeah. But they're not used to it, don't especially like it. Productivity right. is way down, and that's depressing right. the economy. Just think of that. 
Well, Larry, think about what's happening in New York City alone. People don't want to take the subways anymore. It's filthy when you get down there. The poor guy from Goldman Sachs got shot on a Sunday morning because yep. people down in the subway, you know, there's, it's out of control. And so people that have been home, that have been productive from home, now don't want to be forced to come back to the city. Yet you have the city saying to the big companies, you've got to bring these people back because we're choking to death. We need these people to come back. So there's this yin-yang that's happening in that, in that, in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I'll tell you, the corridors at, uh, at Fox Media, people have come back. I mean, when I first yeah. started the show a year and a half ago or whatever it was, uh, the building was empty. Uh, I, yeah. I always go to work, but, um, and I, I get tested a lot. So uh, real quick, we just got a minute left. Stephanie, is there a particular investment you want to mention? Well, I think this week it's going to be very interesting to see uh, the banks. They're going to report earnings, and, um, and you know I am overweight them. They're very cheap. They're all down about anywhere from 16 to 25 percent year to date, and many of them trade at book value. We know capital markets are going to be weak. The offset right. is we do have higher interest rates, and yep. banks actually right. make more money. So I, it's going to be interesting. I want to I see how jump. they trade. And, I got it. Yeah, so, so I got you. I got you. But we'll I'm watch out those. of time. I'm out of time. I love both of you. Stephanie Link and Kenny Polcari. Wonderful stuff. Folks, after the break, money and politics, uh, Liz Peek and Steve Moore. We're going to have some fun with that one, too. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. Money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore. Chief Economist of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and the author of Govzilla. Uh, I got a couple things for you kids, but Liz, I got your uh, I got your column on Elon Musk. Uh, the key word here, the key, the key the money sentence. My bet is on Musk. I love that. Now we just talked about this with Ken Paul Carey and Stephanie Link, two very good market people. But you're saying my bet is on Musk. Uh, Let's see. The original offer was $52.20, $44 billion. So the stock closed in moonlight trading at $35.04, down 5%. As I, go, I just was going online looking at their profile, Liz. I love this. Uh, earnings per share on a trailing 12-month basis, zero. But 0. 0.24, right? I'll call that zero. And the price-earnings ratio on the same basis is 152. Now, I wouldn't want to buy that with those kinds of numbers, okay? That's point number one. Point number two, uh, for my way of looking at life, um, I mean, I think Elon, this is just one chapter in a long, I don't think he's going to walk away. I think he's going to get it. I think the Twitter people have been lying through their teeth from day one. They know how bad it is. But if he doesn't buy it, who's going to buy it? You know, I, I think it was Stefan, and it might have been Polkari, he said the stock's going to open at 20 on Monday. And my yeah. response to that is um, the difference between 20 and zero uh, could evaporate very fast because I don't know who's going to buy this turkey. Well, OK, so I, I agree. I mean, I think that uh, the real question is how badly has Twitter manipulated their numbers? How dishonest have they been with shareholders, the SEC and with Elon Musk? Because. Elon Musk is not a fool. I mean, for him and his advisors and his law firm uh, to basically charge uh, Twitter with not being responsive to his demands, which, by the way, seem to me particularly or a completely reasonable demands. He wants to know basically 
how many average daily users are there? And if 10% or 20% of them are spam or bots or whatever you want to call them, the, the business is worth an awful lot less uh, than Twitter's management is indicating, saying that's only 5%. So it seems to me he's within his rights to want to know the details of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the value of the company, it, it's a pretty substantial platform. I mean, yes, it's not making money. Obviously, Musk's uh, intentions were to create a business model where it would make more money. Uh, you know, not clear that that could happen, but is this also a vanity project for Musk? Maybe, and, and good for him. I mean, I'd love to see him, even if it doesn't make much money for him, uh, really create an open, honest forum where everybody is treated the same. You know, there's, I mean, there's a lot to like here. I just, I think that Musk obviously bid too much, uh, both, you know, before and after he made that bid. The tech stocks were under enormous pressure. They still are or at least maybe they're bottoming now. But, uh, you know, I think he paid too much. I think you're right. My guess is there'll be another chapter, and it could be Musk who comes back and buys it, but at a lower price. Steve Moore, I I want to look at the politics of this. I mean, this is a front-page story. Every time Elon Musk attracts front-page coverage, (laughs) all right, uh, the mainstream media. Well, you know, they, Larry, they, he, he's almost like Donald Trump the way he now yes, he's dominating. Yes. No, that's <laughs> that's exactly. By the way, I I, could, you know, I I called him the Don. He's the Donald Trump of Silicon Valley, Wall Street. He's you know, uh, uh, he's like gales of creative destruction. That's what Elon Musk does. Yeah. So, but yeah. so this guy comes out, and the original thing, he wants to buy it to establish free speech. Right. The mainstream Mm -hmm. media hates free speech. And worse than that, worse than that, he then comes out and says he's going to vote Republican in the (laughs) congressional elections. And then even worse than that, Steve Moore, he comes out and says, look, I voted for this this gal who won the congressional primary in South Mm -hmm. Texas. I don't remember her name. So he's just doing everything. So the the mainstream media hates the guy. So what do you make of this? Uh, well, it's too bad he wasn't born in the United States, right? Or he could be the next Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, I want to respond to what what um, what you guys were talking about with respect to the business aspect of this. I never really got the. I really never understood uh, by Twitter. Why, why not just start your own Twitter? I mean, you know, for tens of billions of dollars, you, this is this idea that these big you know, tech platforms are monopolies is crazy. This is the wild west out there. And it seems to me that, you know, our guys should do what Trump and others are trying to do is just create alternative platforms that don't discriminate against conservative voices. And they, they can do quite well uh, out there. So, um, you know, let he should take the, how much was he going to buy it for? $30 billion? 44. Platform, 44. What was it? 44. Yeah, think, of, think of what he could build with $44 billion. So, um by the way, I, uh, my kids don't really use Twitter anymore. They've moved on to TikTok and other, you know, other kinds of platforms. So, you know, this is an always evolving, uh, you know, internet. And you you put it very well. There's these creative gales of destruction, especially in social networking. He's a disruptor. He is like Trump. By the way, I just want to say proudly, we have this burgeoning Instagram site. Uh huh. For uh-huh. me and the show. I mean, it's really cool. Yeah. And people are responding. Well, that, but 
That's Liz. exactly my point, Larry. That's exactly my point. You don't. I mean, do you have a Twitter account? You probably do. Well, but... I, I, I used to be very, very active on Twitter. Um, right. And then I went to Washington and I stopped for obvious reasons. Right. Uh, <laughs> also, you know, I had a lot of followers, but I get I grew weary. Like my followers, many of them defended me, but. The people that don't like me, I mean, they're, they're poisonous. I mean, I got tired yeah. of reading them. <laughs> it's like, it's, I said, I, I'm not really that bad. I mean, it's just that. It's, <laughs> but Liz, is it? <laughs> I mean, it kind of gets to you. You, know, you, you, you. you dial up your Twitter account before you go to bed, and you see with these these attacks on you, and you can't sleep all night. It's like I'm, like I'm a murderer, are killer. Kill, are you still killing those puppies? <laughs> yes, that's what it's like. But Liz, how? I mean, is it to Steve's uh, question? Uh, would must be. I mean, how hard is it to start one? Uh, very hard. I yeah, mean, look what is. Trump has uh, tried to do, and it's just not. In my view, it's not really going anywhere. Parlor is maybe uh, a good example too, because you actually have very smart, very capable people behind that platform, and it still is actually nowhere. Um, look, I, I'm, Twitter is different than, Steve, what your kids are interested in. T- Twitter has become sort of the go-to place for people who do what we do. I mean, it's very, very mm-hmm. active, uh, actively used by people in the media, uh, people who want to promote television and, and things they write, et cetera, et cetera. It's a little and different. Po- I mean, Instagram politics. is a different thing. TikTok's really different. Um, Twitter has a real place, and I think it ta- it's not – it's not easy to create something like this, uh, is the answer. By the way, Steve Moore, I want to throw TikTok out of the country. TikTok yeah. is an instrumentality of the Chinese Communist Party. All the user information goes right to, to their central committee, uh, by law, by Chinese law. And I, you know, Trump tried to sell it to get rid of it. We couldn't do that. Red, the clock ran out. Um, I, don't, I mean, I want to get rid of TikTok. That's Chinese... Chinese spying operations, all it is. Well, you may be right about that. And, and, and the fact that China is really emerging in these social media platforms is all the more reason we shouldn't tear down ours. You know, I don't understand yes. this word. No, that's a great point. Amazon. Yeah. I mean, no, no. the only benefits of all this antitrust legislation, I'm very worried about this Klobuchar bill that went break up big tech. And a lot of my conservative friends on Capitol Hill are in favor of that. The problem is the big beneficiaries of that are going to be the Chinese. Mm. You know yeah. what? I think you're absolutely right. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. And um, we should have strict espionage laws, which we actually do. We have CFIUS, uh, but uh, they get away with murder. And that's not good. Uh, listen, uh, Robert, <clears throat> Robert O'Brien and John Radcliffe and I are going to, you know, we wrote this letter with a whole bunch of other people uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Pelosi and Biden and, and Schumer, of course, got nowhere. But we're going to put an op-ed piece up in the journal, you know, making the case again. because About yeah. TikTok? Well, Liz, it's, um, it's, O'Bri- it's more general that okay. O'Brien is the leader here, national security advisor. Um, what you were saying, as Steve was saying, if you tear down our tech companies, whether they're social media or tech, uh, you know, and some of the companies do both, uh, and they do some great work, uh, you know, for example, in artificial intelligence, we're the world leader, it's coming from these companies. And 
we don't want to slaughter them. We don't want to destroy them because you're helping China. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's a key point. And look at Steve Mnuchin at Trump's uh, direction tried to sell, you know, we were, we were looking at deals with TikTok and, and uh, ByteDance, the uh, parent. Right. Um, uh, we thought we had a deal with Microsoft. It just didn't pan. We didn't have enough time. That's the basic point. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, I'd like to throw them out. All right. Um, let's take a quick break. Uh, Liz Peak, folks, Fox News contributor, Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Uh, I'm Larry Kudlow. When, when we come back, we're going to look at a very interesting story written by Kim Strassel, the Wall Street Journal. And the title of the story is Won't Biden Fire Anyone? We will carve that up. I have about a hundred names that he should fire on my list. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, folks. We're here talking money and it was a good stock market section for this. Really good. Anyway, Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, financial uh, columnist, and uh, Steve Moore at Freedom Works and uh, Unleash Prosperity and Gubzilla. So uh, let's can we talk about this Kim Strassel article. I mean, here's this guy, Biden, uh, really surrounded by dummies, okay? Dummies. And uh, his whole presidency has collapsed for all the reasons that the three of us have talked about for the last uh, year plus. And... Um, he hasn't fired anybody. He hasn't fired his economics people. He hasn't fired his goofy climate change radicals. He hasn't fired his national security people. Uh, in just 18 months, he's taken a very strong economy, running it into the ground. Uh, COVID disaster, Afghanistan disaster, right? Uh, drug shortages, border disasters, inflation disasters, energy disasters, baby formulas, and nobody gets fired in the Biden administration. Uh, Steve Moore, I go to you. Uh, how can this be? How dumb can he be? <laughs> so we have a, a big study that will be coming out in a couple of days, Larry. So I'll give you the um, kind of scoop on this uh, on the Kudlow show. Um, we looked at the top 80 uh, appointees in the, in the Biden administration mm. um, that deal with economics and commerce. And the, uh, the median years of business experience is zero. <laughs> Zero. Oh, wow. Um, wow. More than more than half have no business experience. The the mean is about two years of business experience. So these people don't know anything about anything. Um, and they are. You're right. They are ideologues. Uh, and by the way, in in the Trump administration, you know, it was you know six or seven years of business experience. So in the in the in the uh, Biden administration, they're all lawyers, activists, uh, university professors. Uh, or just people who've been involved in politics their whole life. And you look at these people like Jennifer Granholm and Pete Budishak, would you even hire them to run a lemonade stand? Mm. <laughs> I mean, really, they, they are complete ideologues who've never run or managed anything. None of them have been fired. And I think that's because this is what Biden wants. He wants ideologues in these positions. And I, one last thing about this. If Joe Biden called me tomorrow and said, Steve, call me and I want your advice about what to do. What, what Joe Biden needs to do if he's going to save his presidency is I would tell him, you know what? Hire somebody like a Fred Smith or an Elon Musk or someone who knows something about just logistics and running things. Just put them in charge. You go out and give your speeches. 
put somebody in charge who knows something. There's nobody, Larry. Who's over there that you would trust with the economy or national security? I can't think of a single one. I thought it would be John Yellen, but she's been a profound disappointment. Mm. Well, I, w- I agree. You know, we had, uh, Liz, we had in the Trump group um, a ton of people who came out of business. Uh, you know, just um, at our level, you had uh, <clears throat> Wilbur Ross, right, was the Commerce mm-hmm. Secretary. Yep. Yeah. You had Stephen Mnuchin uh, at Treasury, had, you know, had spent all those years at Goldman Sachs and then mm-hmm. you know, be- became yep. a banker and a movie producer. I mean, we understood business. I, I spent all those years on Wall Street. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you just you don't have that, Liz. And I, it shows. And I, I you know, I, I think that Kim Strassel's exactly right. Yeah, uh, how I would agree he... 100%. I, I think, though, we, none of us should be surprised by this. This was also the game plan in the Obama White House. I remember writing columns about how there was no business expertise in the Obama White House. In fact, I wrote a thing for the Daily Beast about, you know, the Obama kids should start a lemonade stand to, to Steve's <laughs> point just because someone in the White House should know about profit and loss. Uh, that is not what act, you know, what motivates or guides Democrat policymaking. They don't really look for effectiveness. They don't look for answers. They look for, uh, you know, checking ideological boxes that kind of uh, are, hap- are, are sort of pleasing to their base. But I think now the Biden administration is in such a pickle. I mean, I, just, I went online this morning and looked, as I frequently do, at his approval ratings. It is unimaginable that they're getting worse, but they mm. are. Mm. Uh, and you know, What was the number? Point, what's, what's the latest number? Well, I think it was 38, but one, one of them out there is pretty credible as 36. And, mm. I mean, it's, that's just really horrible. Isn't he uh, in the, uh, on the economy stuff, inflation and so forth? Isn't he like in the high 20s? Well, and and by the way, with some subgroups like young people and Hispanics in the 20s, I mean, you know, no one imagined it would be this bad. But as far as I can see, it is not going to get any better because they have no solutions to anything. And and I think Kim's right that at a point like this, um, and I'd say particularly after the midterms, this will be true, they have got to do something to show that they're at least aware, and in this man's case, that is an uphill battle to convince Americans that he's aware of anything, but at least they understand things aren't going well. And honestly, the way he trots around the country talking about how great his economy is, it, you know, it, it sounds like he doesn't understand. Let me just read you something real quick from this. Homeland Security Alexandra Mayorkas might be handling a border crisis were he not busy interviewing Mary Poppins to head a disinformation <laughs> board. Attorney General Merrick Garland is too tied up tracking parents at school board meetings and tackle for, uh, violent crime. Interior Secretary Deb Hallen blew through a deadline for a new offshore leasing plan to increase oil supply, focused as she is on creating a Truth and Healing Commission. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, charged with unsnarling COVID supply chain snags, was last seen unveiling a $1 billion pilot project to promote racial equity in America's roads. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra was last seen never. (laughs) Right? I mean, Javier is probably the... Uh, the best politician in the lot because he's just under the yeah. desk. He doesn't want to even show up. But Well, Larry, I think a corollary to this is also that apparently the, the rate of staff 
leaving, exiting the White House is at unprecedented levels. And, mm. you know, the Trump White House had some chaotic moments, to be sure, and a lot of people <laughs> didn't last. This one apparently is off the charts. I didn't I wasn't even aware of that. But there is it, it is just think it's just in terrible shape. You know, the other side is the national security side with the bungling in Afghanistan, which in many ways, I think, was the beginning of the end of the Biden presidency. I mean, he, that after that, yes. e- everything seemed to fall apart. Um, but you had, uh, you know, they're always uh, a dollar short and a day late in the Ukraine. Um, uh, Blinken goes to Alaska to some meeting uh, with the Chinese high command, and, and all they do is yell at him, and he doesn't say anything. Uh, their diplomacy is broken. The military stuff, I mean, really, uh, Milley, General Milley, uh, is more interested in a woke uh, military, it seems, than he is to, um, you know, bolstering our defenses against our enemies. And I, I thought for sure after Afghanistan, heads would roll, but they never did. You know, you're right about what's going on in the Defense Department. I've, I've talked to a number of people who are telling me exactly what you just said. And these are pretty high-level uh, who've been in the, in, the, um, in the Defense Department for many years. They're, they're saying that the number one priority of, the, of our military right now in the brass at the top is climate change, mm-hmm. not keeping us oh. keeping our country safe. I mean, that's they, so everything is green energy stuff you know, with our tanks and our and our planes and so on. So it's it's a, it's real. It is. It is a danger to the security of this country. No question about it. I mean, here you got Yellen who runs around the globe talking about the existential <laughs> climate change <laughs> risk, right? And telling everybody the solution to $100 oil and a little less than $5 gasoline is uh, is renewables. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's not credible. Nobody okay. believes that. I mean, change. Don't you know that? Then, then you have the, this guy, uh, the one running the EPA, Liz, now wants stricter and stricter ozone regulations. Yeah which would shut down the Permian Basin, which produces 43% of our oil. Yeah, yeah, no, I I read about that because my head exploded when I saw that. Really? That came out after the week in which everybody in the world, including Democrats, were hammering Joe Biden on the gasoline prices and Mm. not producing enough uh, oil and gas at home. How could they even contemplate does that guy ever talk to the White House? Does he read the newspapers? How could they contemplate impacting Permian Basin output? And by the way, it's not just 43 percent of production. It's 40 percent of drilling. So it's not like an old field that isn't necessary to our future. I, you know, they, I, again, they don't have any solutions. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, they're going to have to – I think Ken's right. They're going to have to fire a whole bunch of people just to tell the country we care because that – is what the messaging problem is right now, according to Democrats. Americans don't feel that Joe Biden understands how bad things have gotten. And by the way, there's another thing we haven't uh, talked about and not many people are talking about, which is COVID. COVID is actually not great right now. We've got cases and hospitalizations increasing. The FDA is dragging their feet. Um, I would argue, actually, the Afghanistan thing began the polling slide, but so did the fact that you had a surge in COVID after Biden did a victory lap and said it was over. It's not over, and this could be the next big thing. Thanks, kids. Liz Peake and Steve Moore, thank you ever so much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. 
Dial us up on the Fox Business Show, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, and I'll be here next Saturday. Thanks for listening.